0: All right, let's go Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll put the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we actually really adore giving them away around here. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief, among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be uh, defined by Him, shaped by Him, evaluated through the lens of knowing Him. Uh, And if the Scriptures are what He uses to do that in your heart and life, then it's pretty smart, I think, to be reading the Bible regularly and and we can fix that if you don't have one of your own. So we are a few weeks now into uh, an effort to try to kind of tap into our inner child for a little while. Uh, we're constantly asking the why question when it comes to uh, the, the things that kind of normally make up what we would call a church service. Um, and, and every, and, and we're Every parent, I think, at least my theory holds true, uh, every parent is familiar with the Y stage, right? Did y'all experience that in your house? We're walking through that in my house right now. Uh, if you've got little kids right now, you know exactly what it's like. Um, if, if your kids are older and gone now, you maybe have forgotten what it's actually like to live through that time, and now you look on that time as a fond thing. All right? uh, but for those of us who are kind of in the middle of that season, it's not very fun. All right? uh, mostly because the why question will come out 30 or 40 or 50 cajillion times in the matter of about 15 minutes. All right? And so you're just kind of hammered with it. Um, and so sometimes the question hits you as an, as an annoyance. It's, it, there's just no end to the tunnel, and you're, you're wondering if it's ever you know, going to see the light of day again. But then sometimes, sometimes, at least if you're a thinking person, sometimes the why question just kind of lights you up. You ever been in that moment where a simple, innocent question was asked, and it caused you to go, hey, wait a minute. Why do we do that? Why do we do this thing in, in that way? It causes you to slow down and carefully think through the reasoning for doing something or doing something in a specific way. And, and sometimes, sometimes asking the why question causes you to change how you view and how you do that thing. All right? Now that you've given it a critical eye, it's affected how you approach it. All right? uh, but then sometimes, sometimes, Like Sometimes asking the critical why question reinforces what you've been doing all along. And now that you've stopped and thought about it for a bit, now that you've actually put the pieces together, you couldn't imagine doing that thing in any other way. Well, of course that's the way it's done. It seems obvious now. You walked into the situation assuming things, but now that you've taken the time to think through it, There's a very obvious reasoning for doing something a specific way. And I I think a lot of things, maybe not all, but at least a lot of things that normally get packed in what we would call the regular rhythms of the church, a weekly church service, actually fall into that category. They actually fall into that category. Stuff that maybe you've done as long as you can remember and always done a specific way, but if we would just stop and think critically about it for a moment, think about it deeply for a while, actually has an incredibly good reason for doing it and doing it in a specific way. And so you know, we started a few weeks ago by beginning to pick apart all the different things that we do on a Sunday morning, and the first question we obviously had to answer was, well, why do we gather, right? Right? Like, like, is that something that, that that actually has to happen? I mean, we live in the age of the internet. We got all these other options available for us, and we can pick our tribe and pick our, our club based on all kinds of different variables now. So, so like, why is gathering important? And we discovered that gathering is actually a core piece of who we are. It's our, a core piece of our identity as God's people. Gathering is not just something we do. Gathering is something that we are. There's a very different posture in in those two tiny little words it's not something we do it's something we are and God uses that gathering to produce massively important things in us we follow that up the next week by asking why God uh, why we uh, proclaim God's word here right like the proclamation of God's word, it's something that, that, that we're kind of fond of here. We, we read it and we preach it. Even the stuff that you know, may be a little more culturally advantageous to avoid or downplay a little bit. Right? Like, like it causes us to read some things in some awkward moments sometimes. And it causes us to, to preach some things in some awkward moments sometimes. And so uh, we, we ask the question, why, why is that important to us? Why are we, uh, why are we passionate about proclaiming God's word? And, and so it's because God uses it to, to create us as his people. And he uses it to sustain us as his people. And he ultimately uses it to secure us as his people. We need God's word. God has designed his word to be the food that the church feasts on weekly. We need it as much as we need anything else. And then last week we applied our why question to the act of singing. We learned three specific reasons. First, because God commands it. He said so, so we must. But not simply because he said so. It's as if it were some kind of twisted entertainment from him. He commands it because we need it. We've been created by God to to experience him deeply through his good gift of music. But, But that gift isn't merely expressed in isolation. It's There's a corporate reality to our singing as a gathered church that goes far, far beyond just the addition of volume. There's something tangibly real, spiritually real in that moment where the gathered church sings with one voice that's wholly different than just a crowd making some noise. We build up the body. We build up individual members within the body as we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God's good gift carries a far bigger reality than what we can see on the surface. And then, what do we do? We sang, man. Anybody that was paying attention last week, wasn't it better? Didn't you enjoy that? It's almost, almost as if we need it. And understanding it better fueled it. Maybe we should do that more often. I don't know. Just a smart idea. But that was last week. Now we got a new thing to, to pick apart. So what's the next thing that, I, that we need to kind of pick apart in the regular rhythms of our gathering? I mean, I think we need to talk about why we baptize. Sound good to you? I mean, we don't have another plan. That's so what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> why we baptize. Now, admittedly, admittedly, this isn't an every week activity for us. All right? Though, would anybody complain if it was? Like, that would be a good thing, Right? Yeah, that would be a great thing. It's, so it's 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 not something we do every Sunday, but man, we would love to, to do it every Sunday uh, whenever we're able to. And so whenever we baptize someone in our church, here, here's something I don't know if you've ever thought through. We intentionally do it on a Sunday morning in front of everyone. Is that important? Is there something to that that's actually good, and maybe even necessary. In fact, I would even argue that it needs to be an action performed in front of the gathered body. So that raises a very obvious question for us this morning. Why do we do it like that, right? Why do we baptize people when we get them in this room, in this context with the gathered church? Like, like some of you may have a baptism story that doesn't involve the gathered church. Does that still count? I think it does. But what if it wasn't as good as it could have been? we got a problem on our hands, though. In order to faithfully answer the question, why do we need to do it on a Sunday morning in front of the gathered church, I think we first need to answer the question, what baptism even is? Right? Because, let's be honest, that's a more difficult question for some folks to answer. Right? Um, some, Some of that, I think, comes from from the fact that you know churches aren't always clear when it comes to teaching on this subject, it, at least not in modern times. Maybe that was true of a of a bygone era, but but in in our day and age, I, like it's kind of hard to to really nail down what churches uh, in our world teach about what baptism is and why it's important, all those kind of things. Churches are often guilty of focusing on on other more pragmatic issues or topics of concern, and uh, but I, but I think another reason for the confusion is because people often bounce around all over the place. Now nowadays, right? It's kind of hard to nail people down to, to being a part of one church family, even. And so there's, so because there's all these different opinions and all these different ways of approaching it, people have kind of, I don't know, uh, they've kind of syncretized this view from over here and 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 this view from over there, and they've kind of Frankenstein their way into uh, coming up with something that seems to make some sense to them. Even if even if that thing that they've slapped together doesn't have anything to do with what the Bible actually says. Um, and we can throw on top of that the fact that, I mean, this is New England. I don't know if you know this, but our Catholic heritage runs deep here. It influences some things, it affects the way people see some stuff, right? Creates a whole bunch of new problems. Whenever I interact with someone who wants to be baptized, I always, and I mean always, start by asking them to explain to me what baptism is. And almost every single time, and I really mean this, almost every single time I've had that conversation with an adult in New England, they'll say something along the lines of, that's how I'll become clean from my sin. Almost every time. Now, there are whole denominations that teach things like that and maybe you have a story similar to that one or maybe grew up in a church setting like that but here's a really important question is that actually true is that is that how the system works is that the game that god designed there are a lot of people whole bunch of people in our world whether they're in the church or outside of the church there's a whole bunch of people in our world that think that baptism is required for someone to be saved that it's an essential part of how we come to jesus or maybe more nuanced it's an essential part of how we continue pleasing jesus and i mean jesus did require baptism from his followers right Matthew 28, Jesus tells us in the Great Commission that a key piece of our disciple-making effort is going to be baptizing people in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And so baptism is 100% something that is required of the Christian. It is a non-negotiable for the Jesus follower. He commanded it, full stop. So here's the rub that we find ourselves in. Before we can answer why we baptize in front of the congregation on Sunday morning, we first need to answer what baptism is. But before we can answer what baptism is, I, I think we also have to understand what the gospel is. Does that make sense? And once we understand this gospel piece and what it actually is and what it very much is not, and I think the other two will slot in quite nicely. That like they'll probably do the work for us. It'll, it'll be one of those moments where it's like, oh, that's why. I like those moments. I live for those moments. And I think baptism will, will do that for us today. So we got some work to do. What is the gospel? Well, Romans chapter 5. If you're not there, hurry up. All right. Romans chapter 5. We're going to start off in the middle of chapter 5, starting in verse 6. The Apostle Paul says this, writing to the church of Rome, says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, let's call time out there. So Paul says, while we were weak and ungodly, and neither of those terms are designed to make you feel good about you. Anybody love celebrating the fact that they're ungodly? Anybody going, yeah, yeah, that fits. Weakness here, it's not talking about physical strength. It's talking about strength of character. In other words, we are morally weak. Morally weak. So, so what does that mean? It means that left to our own devices, left all on our own, if God doesn't step in to do something, we are all incapable of doing what is pleasing to God because our hearts are all bent towards loving sin. We would rather have sin than him. Our character is morally weak, but but not just loving sin. We're mostly bent towards loving ourselves, Rather than God, it flushes itself out in, in in loving our sin. After that, but that's where the ungodly piece comes into play, right? Paul's not talking about those who just don't do the church thing. That's not my ball game. I'm just not. I'm just not. I don't think about that stuff. I don't. I don't care about spiritual things. That's kind of a, a standard New England response, right? I'm set. Paul's not talking about those who just don't do the church thing. He's He's arguing that all people everywhere have set themselves against, over and against, an infinitely good God. They have rejected Him as creator, rejected Him as king and lord of their hearts and lives, and they've exalted themselves to be lord instead. It's a very standard New England thing, too. We've all rejected His Lordship, and so in order for someone to properly understand the magnitude of what was accomplished in the cross, when we start telling the story of the gospel, we said Jesus did this and Jesus did that, in order for somebody to properly understand the magnitude of what was accomplished on the cross, they first, and I seriously mean this, they first need to honestly answer the question, what is it exactly that weak-willed and ungodly sinners like me actually deserve? Because until we answer that question fairly, until we answer that question honestly and truthfully, we don't understand the magnitude of the cross yet. When we talk about Jesus coming and dying for us on the cross, it's, it's not because he looked down on our situation and went, you know what? They seem worthy of my love. It's not because he he looks down on uh, on us and goes, hmm. they they could just get out of their own way, you know what, I'll nudge them through. (laughs) They'll get there. They just need a a little bit of help. What we deserve is is this holy and righteous wrath the Bible teaches. And Paul doubles down on that reality with an illustration. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, uh, think, think about that scenario for uh, just a moment. You you got some really respectable person that you know in the hospital, like y'all. You've never met them, but uh, you've heard that they've done some really nice things in the community. Maybe maybe you even like that person. You'd be a fan of them on Facebook. They need a heart transplant. You're a perfect match. How many of you going? Sign me up. That's scarce, scarcity. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. We giggle and laugh at the idea. But Then Paul takes the next step. He says, perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die, right? Uh, he's talking about people that you're fond of here. Maybe it's a good friend of yours. Somebody you grew up with and went to school with. Maybe your are a Sunday school teacher. Maybe somebody that you enjoy spending time with. You actually might even say you love them. Same scenario, they're in the hospital, they need a transplant, you're a perfect match. How many are going, me, pick me, give them mine. Now some of us are more nobly minded and run towards the fire kind of folks and and we maybe think about it for a while, right? But you still got to think about it. That's not a decision that you're making immediately. That's a decision that that you need to be very conscious of, and you are very slow to make. And maybe you're thinking, "Take the next step, Paul. Like, give us another scenario where it's my kid. I'd say yes without, without even thinking about it. Take that heart. It's theirs." But Paul doesn't go that direction. Where does he go with it? He goes the other way. See, even though even though the the lay my life down for the one that I love story is the kind of story we all love to see. Even though that's the kind of story that you know that, that we like to maybe spend some money on and turn into a movie, and we'll all clap and applaud and maybe give an award to you know at the end of the day. Like that's the kind of story we love to celebrate. But it, it, like we need to we need to be very careful here to note that that's not at all what Jesus did. It's not even close to what Jesus did. Paul says in verse 8, that it is while we were sinners that Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for the respectable one, and he didn't die for his close friends. No, 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 no. He died for his enemies, his enemies, the ones who take every opportunity they can get to reject him and assert themselves as king and lord on his throne. That's who he laid his life down for. At the end of the day, despite what the Christian subculture we've created for ourselves likes to try and celebrate, the cross, hear me, is not a testimony of our value. The cross is a testimony of God's extreme mercy and grace. Those two things are worlds apart. One says, Jesus did this because I deserve it. And the other says, Jesus did this because he is good. Those are not the same thing. Those who were separated from God because of their sin are now being reconciled to him. Listen, by him. The just punishment that we deserve is being absorbed in his death in our place. That's the gospel. What was rightly owed to us as being intercepted by him, by the one who laid his own life down, which leads us to verse 9 here. Paul says this. So since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So follow the logic train here. Uh, Weak-willed and ungodly sinners cannot fix their problem. They are powerless to do something about their situation. The gospel is that those who place their trust in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf are justified and reconciled. Justified and reconciled. Justification is the declaration of innocence. It's a legal term. Those who were guilty have had their offense expunged. It no longer stands between them and God. But Jesus did not merely remove the problem of sin. The cross does not create two neutral parties. No, reconciliation is the next step. Reconciliation is the institution of peace between two parties that were at war. Enemies became friends. They've been brought back together in right relationship. So not only does trusting in Jesus' work on our behalf move us from the category of guilty to the category of justified, but it also creates in us a new reconciled relationship with God that loves Him and joyfully submits to His Lordship over us. Justified and reconciled and both of those things are accomplished by jesus and they are maintained by jesus and they are secured by jesus when we trust in the sufficiency of his death in our place but you may or may not have noticed that baptism is nowhere to be found in that text right Did did Paul miss something here? Did did he leave out a part of the gospel? Paul doesn't say that we are justified and reconciled by Jesus' death and our obedience to Jesus. That's not what he says. We can talk about the gospel all day long. All day long, we can go to text after text after text and spell out the details of the salvation that has been offered to us by Jesus. My favorite is probably Ephesians 2 For by grace we have been saved through faith, and it is not of our own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? We can talk about the gospel all day long and never, ever mention baptism, and we will not be guilty of selling a partial gospel. Why? Because baptism is not a part of the gospel. It's ancillary to that. Baptism is not a part of the gospel, full stop. It doesn't matter what church tradition you may have come out of. And with a more loving tone, it doesn't matter what your story is. It's not something that is required for salvation. And it's not something that plays a part in your salvation. In fact, I want to lovingly take another step and say, thinking that it is required maybe calls into question your salvation. Why? Because you're adding a man-made effort back into the gospel equation. I'm so glad Jesus brought his peace, I'm glad I brought mine. It doesn't belong in the equation at all. It's not a part of the equation. So if baptism is not part of what Jesus is doing to save his people, then why does Jesus command it? It seems, I mean, does Jesus seem like the type of guy that commands things that aren't necessary? You might want to go there. I'm going flip to your right, to the beginning of chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. So Paul is going to address a faulty view in some of his opponents that... That The grace alone, by faith alone gospel that he has been teaching uh, will lead people to run off the deep end into sin. That's, that's what he's being accused of. And so he starts debunking that ridiculous notion uh, in the part that we're skipping over here, the back end of chapter five. And so he says in the back end of chapter five that we're on a new team now. We're now on team Jesus instead of team dum-dum, team Adam. All right? uh, but in, in chapter six, uh, he continues that argument and says this in verse one. Even though we can talk correctly and at length about salvation all day long, about following Jesus without ever, ever, ever mentioning the subject of baptism, Paul here, he does two things that are really, really important in the, in the beginning of chapter 6. One, he assumes that everybody in his audience has been baptized. He, he calls back to that as if it's an experience they understand. It's not some foreign idea to them. It's a story they all have. Why can he trust that? I don't know, maybe because Jesus commanded it, right? Seems like a good thing for his people to do. He assumes that his audience has been baptized. So it might not be required for salvation, but it's not some foreign concept. It's something they all know and understand and have a story to share. He knows. Something they've all walked in obedience to. The second important thing, though, that Paul does is that he points to that baptism as a picture of a deeper, much harder-to-see spiritual reality. That those who have placed their faith in Jesus, those who have trusted in his finished work on their behalf, they have been united to him in his death. They are buried with and because they are united with Him in His death, we are also united with Him in His resurrection life. I'll just go ahead and say it out loud. That's a really hard thing to wrap our heads around. Anybody else going, nah, it's easy for me. To be honest, I'm not always locked down on how that works. It's a spiritual reality that I think is bigger than us. Somehow, some way, we are united with him in his death, and we are united with him in his life. Which is precisely why I think Jesus gives us such a simple picture. He's good like that. We, we often talk in here about the theological reality that God's commands are not arbitrary. They're they're not just made up willy-nilly. He's not making things up as he goes. He's not just throwing things out there because he's king and he can. They are always, and I mean always, given for our good. And baptism is no different. It's in the same vein. It is commanded, yes, but it is commanded because we need the picture. We need the picture. Just like we saw with the command to sing last week, last week right? He, he commands it because it's it's a good thing he's intended for us to experience. Paul's unpacking a massive truth to the Roman church. and goes, hey, 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 you remember your baptism? Remember that time they dunked you in some water and raised you back up again? Bet you got a story to tell. You remember that? You, you, you want to know Why? You want to know why I can trust that you're not going to go run off into the deep end of sin? It's because you have died to your old self. You've been raised again, born again as a new creation in Christ. You were buried with him in his death, and you were you will be, hear me, you will be raised with him in his resurrection life. And this is why we are insistent about dunking you in some water. Right? I, I can make the academic point that baptism in the, the New Testament is, is always the Greek word baptizo. It means to immerse. Uh, and so uh, anybody who wants to go another route with that needs to deal with the fact that the Greek word involves immersion. There's an academic argument in there that people have to try to do somersaults around to get around. But at the end of the day, there's, a, there's actually a bigger issue. At the end of the day, we dunk you because sprinkling folks doesn't paint the picture correctly. It's the wrong picture. We like to say around here that baptism is an external picture of an internal reality. It's an external picture of an internal reality and a reality that has died to its old self. It's died to past sin and patterns of life. Died to old habits and worldviews. Died to any self-exalted claim to get back on that throne. But at the same time, it's also an outward picture of the internal reality of being raised to walk in the newness of life. A life that is now Today, and will be forever defined by and empowered by King Jesus. Forever sustained by the one who will one day take you home to be with him forever. And what a picture it is. What a picture it is. The the reason why Jesus commands baptism is because it is simultaneously a grand declaration and an incredibly gentle reminder of what it is Jesus has already done and what he has promised to continue doing. And we need that picture. Sometimes we like to say it this way baptism is a story told. It's a story told. So we define the gospel. And now that we have a a solid definition of the gospel, we've talked about what baptism is. Leads us to our last question, right? Why why do we insist on doing it in front of the gathered church? Well, it's important to figure out who that story is being told to. Who that story is being told to. Um, There are three important audiences, I think, that need to witness the story that baptism tells. The first one is you. The one being baptized. You need the story. Just like Paul calls on it here, it's a marker of your new identity, something that you can look back on and go, oh yeah, I trusted this. I still trust this. And so the times when you're struggling and the times when sin is kicking your tail and God's goodness to you is giving you an incredibly simple picture to, to look back on and on, on the one you've placed your hope in. It's a reminder of what Jesus has already done in you and the promise that he will carry you the rest of the way home. It's a good picture. And I'll be honest, there's days I need that picture. I need to lean on that picture. Trust what he has already done and what he is doing. He's good to me like that. The first audience is the one being baptized. The second audience is our friends and family of the one being baptized. It's an important audience, too. Listen, if, if Jesus has changed you, there's some folks that need to know. Right? There's some folks that need to know. Here's where it gets really complicated, though. There are some in this category friends and family. There are some in this category who are going to be really excited for you. Really excited. They love Jesus, too. They, they, they adore you, they love, they love Jesus, and so they are there to encourage you and celebrate with you and spur you on, and it's a good day for them. But then there are also some in the friends and family category that aren't going to be so excited for you. Can we be honest about that? There are less people in this category in the w- culture that we live in, but you step out of our culture to a lot of other cultures around the world, this, this gets to be a much bigger category of people. There's some in that group that will not be excited. In fact, they may even try to prevent it. They, they'll they see your decision to follow Jesus as a grand mistake. And, but listen, these people need to see what Jesus does in our life as well. They need to see it how he's worthy of a greater allegiance. But as important as those two audiences are, neither of them necessitates being baptized at the gathering of a church we 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 can have both of those audiences present pretty much anywhere else a baptism occurs and so that leads us to audience number three your new church family your new church family God gives every single believer a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, to to grow them into maturity and to equip them for the work of ministry, to walk alongside them and to encourage them, to admonish them when necessary, to serve them and be served by them, right? These are truths we hold dear and believe to be God's good gifts to us. And so the reason why we baptize people when the church is gathered together is because the church plays a very key role in helping the baptized person walk and grow. They're involved in that. They're not just watching a baptism in this moment like some kind of weird religious entertainment. It's like, is that that what comes on late night on TBN? A bunch of folks getting dunked to see how it goes. It's not some weird religious entertainment. No, the church is witnessing in that moment the admittance of a new believer into the family. And we are collectively committing in that moment to hold up our end of the disciple-making responsibility. We have a part to play. The one being baptized is being baptized into the church. It's not simply a matter of convenience to do it on a Sunday morning when there happens to be a crowd and the lights and the cameras are on. No, the body plays an important role as a new member of that body is grafted in. We have a part to play. So maybe you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized. It's time to be obedient. It's non-negotiable for the follower of Jesus. He commanded it. But it's not, he didn't command it because your salvation is incomplete without it. That you need to hold up your end of the deal. But Your king commanded it because he has given it for your good. He's given it for your good and you are missing out on a wonderful picture that he's seen fit to use to encourage you. To build you up. You're holding him at arm's length and saying, no, I don't trust the good things you've given me to help me follow you. It's a terrible idea. I promise you, there is far more blessing in his gift than anything you would ever risk losing by finally walking in obedience to him. It's time to be obedient to Jesus. He wants a better good for you than you could ever even begin to wrap your head around. So how about we trust him? I don't know, just an idea. talk after we're done here i'd love to man i'd love to fill that tank up again next week (laughs) make me do it (laughs) it'd be a good day maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of jesus yet but you're thinking you know what i think it's time to become one you weren't ready before but now you're ready you see your need for a savior you see the reality that is your weak-willed and ungodly heart and you are ready in this moment to trust in Jesus's work on your behalf to save you and so and so you're ready to repent of your sin and follow him as savior and lord awesome do it now call out to him in this moment let's go don't wait on me do it now if you want somebody to talk to you about it let's do that uh, Come find me as soon as I'm out of the water. <laughs> I'll be wet, but it's okay. <laughs> and I'd love to help you make sense of what that responsive saving faith looks like. It's a good day to trust Jesus. But what if you're here this morning and you're you've been a follower of Jesus for a while now, and I mean you got your own little baptism story tucked back in your back pocket, and I mean you're just along for the ride today, right? How do you respond to God's word this morning? I think two things. For one, I think we make a more intentional effort to remind ourselves of that story more frequently. Think on it. Pull it up in your head as if God has actually given it for you. Remember it often. Remember it fondly. But secondly, the second thing we need to do today is I think we need to realize that we're not just along for the ride. That's, that's not true. We need to take our peace seriously as we get to re- get ready to baptize a young lady this morning. We need to internalize our role in this as being the ones to witness the grafting in of a new member of the family. We need to take seriously our responsibility to say, I'm going to be there to make sure that God grows her into what he's going to grow her into. We've got a job to do this morning. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'm about to go jump in a bathtub. But however, God is calling you to respond this morning. Let's respond together All right now. It's a good day. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans. Thank you for a gospel that doesn't pull punches, doesn't beat around the bush. It tells us what who we honestly are and what we honestly need. We are weak-willed and ungodly by default. There's nothing in me that could somehow impress you. You saw it even when I didn't. And you sent your son. He lived sinlessly. He died sacrificially. He was raised victoriously so that you can make dead men alive. And so, Father, for those of us in here who, who have trusted in what you have provided and what Jesus has done and for those of us who are have, have been walking with Jesus now for, for years, would you remind us of our baptism story? Help us trust in, in the reality that we were powerless to fix our problem but you came and fixed it for, for us. Father, for those in here who know you that have never been obedient in baptism, would you Would you light a fire under us this morning to finally walk in obedience to the good things you've given? Give us a holy dose of courage today. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know right now. Awaken the weak-willed and ungodly for your name and your glory and our better good. We love you. Thank you for a good day of baptizing a young lady. May you be the one to be celebrated today instead of anything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.